Hello, and welcome back to Houndcast. On this episode, Dylan Starr and I sit down with Lizzie Scambolori to talk about her experiences while attending Moravian, her journey through grad school and studying abroad, her love of medicine and animals, and so much more. As always, check out the show notes for links relating to topics discussed during our conversation. And just as a quick reminder, Moravian's Shining Light Ceremony is on April 21st, where we celebrate the achievements of Moravian alumni such as Lizzie and community partners. With that out of the way, let's get into this episode of Houndcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So you are one of our Shining Lights recipients. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so I know you haven't been back to campus in a few years, and now we get you here in April next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have six degrees, four publications, a patent, and a medical license. Yes. My God. <laughs> <laughs> when do you sleep? <laughs> um, I find some days to yeah. sleep. <laughs> The process was difficult. But. Yeah, yeah, definitely probably some really tough years. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what made you come to Moravian? Well, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, as I was telling you earlier. Um, fell in love with the area. And then when it came time for um, looking for colleges, I wanted to find something that was very well-rounded school. Because um, my dad was saying, you know, I'm a renaissance woman and I need something that is well-rounded also. I really love the liberal arts programs, but I also wanted something that was very sound for sciences and for music, Mm -hmm. as both are very large passions of mine. So he was the one that actually said, you know, maybe consider Moravian. And I was like, okay, I hadn't heard a lot about it. And we went on the tour and as Oh my goodness, as soon as I set foot on the campus, I was in love. You're sold. I, I told, I kept telling my parents like every other day, I was like, can we go back? Can we go back just to see it? Um, but the the science program, music program, fell in love with them. And then that December, we saw Vespers oh, on, mm. on national television. And I was like, I want to be involved in that. And that's that's how I ended up coming to Moravian. And it was just wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. You have so many passions that I feel, yeah, Moravian was like the perfect fit for you. Yeah, and there were other things that I fell in love with that I, I had no idea that I would, you know, fantastic religion courses, which were part of the liberal arts program. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one course, environmental econ. Mm-hmm. I hated e- economics. Abs- <laughs> uh, we were not friends, but environmental econ was part of my major requirements. Loved the professor, loved the course. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I never thought I would love this. Yeah. I never thought I would like that. But that's the the perks of a liberal art program. Mm-hmm. You find things that you had no idea that you would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was through this program that I was able to hone in on those different passions. Um, you know, I had looked at other schools and they were like, you can only do your major. Mm-hmm. You have to stay in that major. Mm-hmm. I had environmental science major and then dual minor in bio and music. And I, it's, you don't get that at many places. You're not able to do all those different things. Yeah. Were so, there any standout professors that you were just oh, in love with? Um, Dr. Kusirk, he had passed away. Mm-hmm. He was my advisor. Oh. He was fantastic. He dealt he dealt with me in a transitional period when I was a little feisty, a, a little <laughs> hard-headed, and you know, he worked with me through that and it, I mean, I turned out to be relatively tolerable, I think, <laughs> but he he played a huge role. Uh, Dr. Husick 
She was monumental in junior and senior year, and she continues to play a huge role. Professor Aziz, I don't know if it's Dr. Aziz, and then Dr. Circle. Uh, So I know you studied abroad. Mm -hmm. What year did you do that? December of sophomore year. Okay. Was when I first went to Africa, and I had as a child, always wanted to go to Africa and the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. I pretty much came out of the womb saying, I want to save animals and I want to save people. Mm-hmm. And one of my areas that I've always wanted to go to was Africa. So I forget what kind of spurred it, but I was like, I, this is my year. <laughs> I'm going to do it. And I found this wonderful program to do behavioral studies with lion cubs. And I jumped on it. That was my first study abroad. It was wonderful. And then that following summer, I went to the Amazon lowlands, lowland rainforest with Dr. Bevington. He was another monumental professor. Uh-huh. I am for botany. Adored him. He was such a wonderful human. I did a SOAR pro project with him. And we went to um, Amazon in Ecuador and spent, how long were we there? It was like a total of three months Oh wow! in Ecuador. Short. It was wonderful, wonderful. What was your favorite thing about studying abroad? I think the experience, but also the people mm-hmm. I met, interacting with different cultures, the lessons I learned from, the, from local tribes, especially regarding conservation, because that's mostly what I was doing at that time, it was incredible. And they were just such humbling individuals and humbling experiences. You learn so much about the land from them and just being human, like being a humble human. And then you come back here and it's just a rat's race. It's mm-hmm. Being a human is hard. Yes. Figuring out how to manage it every day. Yes. <laughs> yes. So can you take us through what happened after you left Moravian? So after I left Moravian, I took a little down period to get good financial backing and kind of figure out where exactly I wanted to go from there. Again, I'm a woman with many different passions, and I was like, I don't know which, specifically which path to pursue and how to pursue it the best way for myself. Um, So I took some time. I was working as a practicing nurse at the time. I got my diploma in clinical medicine um, and clinical nursing. So I was working at the same office where my mom works as a physician. And I was usually her nurse at the, at the <laughs> office, which was wonderful. Uh-huh. That I could got, either go one way or the other. <laughs> yes. Well, luckily, we were like two peas in a pod, oh, so it was wonderful. <laughs> and a lot of my love for medicine com- comes from her. I watched her as a physician growing up as a kid, and I would always she would bring me to work a lot of times <laughs> before I was in school, and I would hide out in the kitchen, but then I would go upstairs to where the patients were. (laughs) I'm sure she loved that. Oh, yeah. She she always tells the story of, you know, she was uh, examining a patient's knee, and all of a sudden she noticed he's talking to her, but he's not looking at her. He's looking over her shoulder, and she turns around, there's this little blonde in there very closely examining the knee with her. (laughs) But um, what was I saying? Oh, so I took some, some down period, you know, got the financial backing, and then worked with some programs to figure out what would work best for me, whether I was going to go doctorate, master's, if I was doing master's, what it was master's in, what I wanted my research in. And that's when I discovered there was this huge deficit in what we know as far as stress-induced immunosuppression. And when I was working on that, I decided, you know, I would go go big or go home kind of Mm -hmm. person. So I was like, I'm going to do my dual master's because there was a wonderful program in Edinburgh and a wonderful program in New Hampshire for Antioch. And I wanted to do both. So they they had a nice blend as far as master's. It's not daily classes. You do classes here and there. So their their schedules actually melded very well. 
especially because of the time difference. University of Edinburgh is usually up at like four o'clock in the morning getting that stuff done. And then by eight o'clock, I was done and started my classes for Antioch. Oh my gosh. So it worked very well. But in that process, starting the research for that, I realized there was a huge deficit as far as our testing abilities for stress-induced immunosuppression. A lot of our testing is very invasive. And I had gotten, in that time, my certification in chemical immobilization. So I was like, if I'm going to be doing this study, my me, myself, as the researcher, I need to be getting my samples. Like, obviously, I can get a veterinarian on board, but I would like to be collecting the specimens myself. So I'm going to get my certification. And I realized, wow, this is very stressful and very <laughs> dangerous for both the animal and the researcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, you happen to dart your foot by accident, you're gone. Like <laughs> those are hefty drugs that they're using. And it's also very traumatic for the animal. Those stress markers go way high. So if you're measuring stress, okay, you can get artificially increased levels. Okay, well, I just skewed all of my information, they're going to rip me apart if I take this in front of a board, and rightfully so. So I was like, how is there no method yet for non-invasively monitoring stress? I mean, we have some methods for um, other hormones, you know, collecting fecal samples, that's a big one, but they're not very good for cortisol. Saliva is fantastic Mm -hmm. for cortisol. I was like, how can I get saliva without actually interacting with this animal? Because that's Mm -hmm. non-invasive, having no contact with the animal. You sit away in a different room, a different area, no interaction, no artificial increase in those stress levels. And that's where the idea of the lion liquor 2.0, as my dad calls it, came into fruition. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember applying for grants and everybody and you know I'm, I'm still a grant reviewer for Nat Geo and even they were like this is not going to work there is no way you are going to be able to bait a lion to come over and elicit salivation that is going to drool in this bucket I was like I'm going to make this work oh so God, I'm so how? yeah so the so the whole concept um it's a bucket inside a bucket so the the um, outer bucket houses ice and two scent baits per se. One is doused in um, catnip extract, which causes significant salivation. And you, if you put it in front of a domestic cat, they're just cooling all over it. And then the other has bear bait, which is an attractant. So that's what draws the lion in. And then as soon as they smell the catnip extract, they just start salivating. Whoa. The inner bucket is the collection. Mm-hmm. So it sits on top of the ice so it cools. So when saliva actually pools in there, you can extend your time to collect it by an hour, two hours before bacteria growth starts. Um, over top of it, there's a grate. So lions love different textures. So it comes over, it has these grates, it just starts rubbing <laughs> and licking on it, more salivation. So yeah. it just starts pulling all this saliva into it. And I was like, this is going to work. This is going to be great. And they're like, nah, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So I, I did a GoFundMe. And all of my money came from GoFundMe, from BRI. I was working as a pathologist intern at that time. Um, it was unpaid, but they gave me a huge um, sum of money towards, towards my project. And then also I got picked up by University of Hawaii at that time because I was a teaching um, biostats, and my students were having a lot of trouble with it. So I made lecture videos, put all those lecture videos on YouTube, Mm -hmm. and Alex from University of Penn, who's also teaching at University of Hawaii, saw those YouTube videos and was like, I'm teaching biostats at University of Hawaii. Can we use your videos, and can you make course materials, and I will pay you by 
funding your research. I was like, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I don't care that I'm like in over my head right now. Absolutely. (laughs) So that came into fruition. When you were trying to fund your research, was it frustrating trying to get that money? Because I know you were working for it for a while. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly frustrating because I knew Yes, there was a high chance that it wouldn't work, but you have to try it. I mean, how do you change ground? How do you push boundaries without taking chances? And I mean, this could be, this opens up a huge field for conservation, whether it's in zoos or wildlife settings, like true um, untainted, pristine wildlife settings. I was like, you just, you have to take a chance on it. And I was getting so frustrated with that, but also... That frustration, I just channeled it into like, I am going to prove them wrong. Like that's just that's just how I am. You tell me I can't do something, I am going to make sure I can do it just to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I thankfully it worked in yeah, my worked in my favor, but it was incredibly incredibly frustrating, especially as a grant reviewer um, for Nat Geo. I've done that for a while, and there's a lot of projects that come in that have a high chance of failure. But you give it the benefit of the doubt. Again, how do you push boundaries without taking these chances and and doing something revolutionarily and novel? So I would always give them the benefit of the doubt. And then for these organizations that I've supported for so long to be like, nah, it's not going to work. Absolutely not. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) darn it. (laughs) How did you find enough time to do, like, I mean, everything but anything? (laughs) You were working on multiple degrees at once. You're trying to fund research, you're trying to do the research. I assume you're doing other things too. You gotta, you know, live, eat, sleep. Honestly, I, I don't, I work very, very well under pressure. So when I don't have many things going on, I get very lazy and I will just sit on the futon and nothing gets done. I need to have so many things going on and it keeps me very energized. I don't know honestly, how it got all done, but it did. It did. Um, but also at the end of my my last year of my master's degree, I also picked up a teaching position. I was teaching as an adjunct professor. I have no idea how those lectures got done. I remember um, that summer before I started teaching, I was making lectures while I was doing a wildlife veterinary stint in South Africa. And everybody there was like, what are you working on? I was like, I have to get these lectures done. And I was on the plane. It's like a 17-hour flight. And I'm sitting there like making all these lectures. And the flight attendants are like, what? You're supposed to be sleeping. I'm like, I don't have time to sleep. (laughs) I can't do that right now. They're like, what are you working on? I was like, I made a really poor decision of teaching. There were lots of chaotic episodes. I was always in the library at Antioch. People always told me they knew when I was in the library because they would find a giant cardboard box full of food. And I would just, I'd bring my pillow, my blankie, my headphones, my giant box of food, and I would just camp out in the library for hours and I could get so much done. And I would always order pizza, have pizza delivered to the library. It was great. There was this place called Athens Pizza that was like right down the road in Keene, New Hampshire. They, I have celiacs and they had the best gluten-free crust. It's like this cauliflower crust. They would coat it in garlic butter. Oh my God, it was so good. Every other day it would be delivered to the library. <laughs> 
librarians were like, you're really not supposed to do this. I'm like, please, I'm here all the time. Just love me. I live in here. <laughs> this is my home. So I assume you were in there more than your actual dorm. Pretty much, pretty much. And at that time, I had an apartment. Because for the graduate programs, you never lived on campus. You had like where you would go to school and then you had your homes outside. So we were always at like each other's places. You know, sometimes we had game nights and then we would go back to our homes. But yeah, I was in the library more than my my home for sure. Well, I know you did a lot of schooling. Is there anything particular that you have a fond memory of that wasn't part of the schooling part at Moravian? Oh my gosh, all the memories with Zeta, for sure. Oh, that was wonderful. Wonderful group of people, such good friendships. I mean, all the shenanigans that we would get into, but I came into that sorority at a very difficult time of my life where I just needed support and I needed people who actually cared and would provide support. And I never took myself as somebody that would be in a sorority. I thought it was so stupid. Uh, you know, when they came around with the little flyers, I was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then I met them and I went to Rush and I was like, wow, these are wonderful humans. You know, they they were there with me when I was first diagnosed with celiacs, which was a very difficult time as well. And I lost a lot of people in my life at that moment. And, you know, they were very supportive through all of it. And there's a lot of people in the sorority I still talk to. Justine Ramos, she was my sorority sister. She is one of my best friends in the whole world. She stuck with me through that entire time, and she's stuck with me ever since. You know, and you to walk away with a friendship like that, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's nice to come to a university for the school aspect, but then be able to leave with so much more than that. Absolutely, absolutely. And also... Um, at Moravian, one of my favorite things to do, I, I mean, when I was here at Moravian too, I was, I had the worst sleeping habits. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. There are so many points in my life. I don't know how I survived mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest and transparent. Um, there were my junior year of college, I was taking an art class on top of all my labs and stuff for bio and for environmental science. And most times I was up the entire day, entire night. I would be up in my little glass room doing my things. Was it drawing? Yes. Yeah. Yep, that explains it. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I, I didn't have time during the day to do any of the art projects because I was also doing um, guitar lessons. I had voice lessons, choir, everything. So I would usually get back around 6 or 7, have a quick dinner, and then start all my schoolwork, all the studying and everything. I wouldn't start art projects till midnight. And I would be up from midnight to 6 a.m. Artistic time, and, right? Yes, that yeah. was my artistic time. I'd get all the art stuff done, and then I would sleep for an hour, go to class. It was Only so bad. Only in your 20s. Only in your 20s. There was there were some periods where I didn't have to spend those full nights doing art or studying, mm-hmm. but because my sleep habits were so bad, I, I couldn't go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have insomnia. I just I couldn't couldn't sleep so to relax myself so that I could get more than an hour I could actually get like five hours of sleep I would walk all the way down to Monocacy Creek Uh with my guitar and I would sit on the the rock wall and play my music I would do a bunch of record that's where my first recording started um and I first started with singing songwriting on Monocacy Creek Uh so that would that would be like my decompression and that was 
big part of my college show. That's a very fond memory. So speaking of your music career, mm-hmm. um, do you play locally at all? Do you record? So I do a lot of recordings. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of um, gigs when I was in New Hampshire because I had a big local musician scene there. They were very supportive of that. So there were a lot of open mics. They didn't have the issues with different trademarks or all that the liability, the legality of it. So you could just go in a place, set up your guitar, start singing. It was great. Here it's a little harder to find, but I feel like Bethlehem is starting to become part of the scene. Oh, yeah, I know the, the, there's one store, I forget what it's called, right on Main Street where they have a lot of... Lobby local, at the Lofts. Yeah, yeah, they have a lot of <laughs> musicians that come in. But right now it's more recording. Again, singer-songwriter, I do all the singing and then the instruments. Um, and I like every other year or so I try to teach myself a new instrument oh. just to keep myself busy. What's this year's instrument? I'm still fighting with the electric violin. That oh. thing is being a pain in the tuchus. <laughs> <laughs> but I play acoustic guitar, electric guitar, ukulele, mandolin, charango, gitalele, electric violin, and harmonica. Gitalele? What is a gitalele? Gitalele is like a ukulele-sized guitar that's tuned to the fifth fret. So it's a different tuning. It's like a tr- It was made for traveling musicians uh-huh. because having the guitars, I mean, when I walk around with it, it's like a giant chimney on my back it's huge so this is something very small and light that you can just throw over your shoulder but it has uh, closer uh, standard tuning to a true guitar so that you can play a lot of those same chords on a gitalele did you bring any instruments to africa i didn't bring any with me but there were some that i i bought there um the the big one is the charango when i was in ecuador it's typically made from armadillo which i'm not a fan of i did not get an armadillo one um but it's south american guitar that's one of the only musical instruments i believe to be tuned to a minor key and it has paired strings like a mandolin but it's tuned to her mind. It is the weirdest instrument on the planet. Wow. And all the books are like in, in Spanish, so I can't read a darn thing. So I'm just playing it by ear. Yeah. Um, but I bought that when I was in Ecuador for the, the study abroad with Dr. Bevington. That's great. Yep. I had learned about it before I left, and I was like, I want to find a market and get one of these. Mm-hmm. And I found one. We were in Otavalo, which is this huge outdoor market. Everybody brings all the alpaca stuff there. You have the alpaca blankets. It's all bartering system. And I got this thing for equivalent of like 30 American dollars. It was That's fantastic. It was fantastic. Deal. So that went all over Ecuador with me. Nice. Yep. How long have you been playing guitar? Let's see. I, well, I started singing... Oh my goodness, when I was just a wee little tyke, because my mother, she's a singer also. Music is a big part of our family. That's why I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, And so I started with the children's choir and then all like the um, all-stars, county choruses, all of that. But stringed instruments wasn't until, I think I taught myself senior year of high school. Um, I had always wanted to learn how to play an instrument, so I decided to teach myself. And then when I was here, um, because I was a music minor, I got the you know required voice lessons, but then I could also get other lessons, so I decided to do classical guitar, and that was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, that was wonderful. You can offer so much. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you tried, like, because you mainly do, like, string instruments. Mm-hmm. Have you tried, like, woodwinds or brass or anything like that? Um, flute. Like the the more of the tribal, the local flutes, somewhat okay on. Other instruments, I'm horrible. 
absolutely, I tried piano. I love piano. I'm horrible with it. Oh, I can pick out notes very well because I, I'm good with learning by ear. And I'm horrible at reading music. I can learn everything by ear. And I can pick out notes on piano, but trying to play, when my hands are on the same playing field, same level, it is just a disaster. It is pure <laughs> chaos. I can only do stringed instruments. It's very weird. I've, they say you can either play guitar, you can either play piano. Yep, I was just going to say that. I've heard it all the time, and it is very, very true. <laughs> Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, if you had any advice for young alumni, people who are graduating right out of college in May, what would that be? I mean, if you know what you want to do, fantastic. But a lot of us don't, and that's okay. You know, for there's this big expectation that you come out of college, you get into a job, you start a family, you have a house, and that's not how it is for everybody. I mean, I still, I'm still living in an apartment. I'm not married yet. I have a boyfriend, so that will come down the road. But you don't have to follow those expectations. It's perfectly fine to take a break and figure out what exactly you want to do. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it's beneficial because it keeps you from jumping into a situation that in the long run you could say, this is really not for me. And then before you know it, you've wasted or lost five years that you could have spent doing something that is more you, that makes you feel truly fulfilled, you know, the no notion of human flourishment. If you need to take time, do it. And also don't leave with the expectation that everything is a linear path. I think my life attests to, you know, it is anything but linear. It is zigzagged all the way. And that's fine because a lot of the things that are occurring nowadays are multidisciplinary. So it's nice to have experience in multiple fields. And a lot of times you don't understand that until you leave school and you can take a few steps back and say, okay, these are my interests. How can I meld them? Or how can I best uh, approach them? Definitely. I feel like a gap year... Growing up, it was always like you could take a gap year after high school and figure mm -hmm. out what you want to do. And over the past few years, it's become a lot more common to take a gap year after college, which yeah. makes so much more sense. Yeah, and some people, maybe you just need to spend some time at home with family. I mean, maybe some family issues have come up. It's okay to do that. I mean, nobody, there should not be this expectation that you have to do everything before you are 30 years old, 40 years old. I mean, there is such longevity mm -hmm. in years if we want to talk about old. I mean, that doesn't really exist no, right now as, as far as current health care. Um, I have one of my uh, colleagues who's a professor with me. She just got her doctorate in her 60s. I mean, there is no timeline. Mm -hmm. Don't let people make a timeline for you. You can do whatever you want when you want it if you're able to. You don't need to get everything done before you are a certain age. You know, you don't. Go with those expectations and also don't let people tell you what you can and cannot do. Very much. <laughs> oh, that's great advice. I'm, I'm going to take that advice. <laughs> um, well, I think we're wrapping up, but do you have anything you want to share or that you're excited about coming up in your life? As you know, I just recently took on um, a new teaching position. I'm a clinical professor now full-time at Pace University. Um, which is where I graduated from with my physician associate degree. So it's wonderful being back there. Um, I will start, I will take over and teach human physiology in the summer and then pathophysiology in the fall and spring, which I'm very excited about. Um, and then on the horizon, I intend to go back and get my doctorate <laughs> and finish the stress-induced immunosuppression 
uh, testing. So we'll see when that happens. <laughs> yeah, with all your time. Yes. Um, well, the feedback that I've gotten from people who have been around you, it's just that your enthusiasm is contagious and your passion is admirable. So oh, thank you. it's clear just having this quick conversation, you are an outstanding person. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was pretty painless, right? Absolutely. Good. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> um, to wrap up, I'm going to do like rapid fire questions. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm going to say a statement and you answer with one word or as many, as little words as possible. Okay. Um, cats or dogs? Cats. Waffles or pancakes? Waffles. When I think of Moravian, I think of? I don't know, Christmas carols for some reason. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> I think because of Vespers. <laughs> uh, McDonald's or Burger King? Burger King. Oh, okay. Can you eat Burger King? Nope. <laughs> but I worked at McDonald's and I hated it. <laughs> That's a fair enough reason. Awesome. I did it. Whew. You did it. Excellent. Waffles and ice cream every day, oh, all day. Heck yeah. Wait, are you waffles or pancakes? Oh, waffles. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You need something to hold the syrup. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Little, little bowls to hold syrup. Yes. Pancakes get too dry. Yeah. They get very dry. And they soak it up. Yeah. And then it's mushy. Yep. Yeah, waffles still stay crispy. They soak it up, yeah. but they stay crispy, and you have a nice little ball <laughs> that you can put everything in, and then 